All good. Um, man, the pressure's on now after all of that. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Second uh, Thessalonians. Okay, we're going to be in chapter 2 today. Last week uh, in chapter 1, um, Pastor Brent spoke to us about uh, the coming judgment uh, of those who don't believe, and not a, not a topic that uh, you know we always like to talk about in church. You know, God's wrath and judgment and the hard things. You know, we, we like to talk about you know how God is loving and how He's gracious, and and that certainly is true. But but there also um, is is a coming judgment uh, for those who don't believe. And in last week's passage, uh, Paul talked about that coming judgment, but he also talked about uh, the preservation of those who suffer. Uh, for the cause of Christ. And so uh, for the afflicted, Paul encourages them to keep doing what they're doing. He encourages them uh, to persevere in their affliction by living in a manner worthy of their calling and thereby bringing glory uh, to God through the church. And, and remember, this is a persecuted church, so these words mean something to them when Paul talks about it. And he gives this warning again to, to those who uh, are not with Christ that, that there will be a, a coming judgment. And, um, you know, for some that's going to be a glorious day, for others uh, not so much. And, and then today as we get into chapter 2, Paul addresses this concern uh, that uh, they had thought that maybe they had missed the day of the Lord, that they thought that maybe they uh, had missed it, it had already come. Others uh, had probably quit their jobs uh, in their kind of religious fanaticism to, to focus on the day of the Lord uh, that maybe is yet to come. And so there was just all kinds of confusion in, in the, uh, Thessalonica about the day of the Lord. In our passage today, Paul, uh, he's going to tell us of two things that must take place that precede the day of the Lord and the gathering of the saints, and we'll get into that uh, more here in a moment. Paul's writing to the church about uh, eschatological matters, and that's just the fancy word that, that means the, the last things, right, the, the coming of the Lord. Uh, and I don't think his aim here is necessarily, um, or anywhere else that he writes about eschatological things, to, to solve a mystery, right? There, there are a lot of mysteries around uh, the end of days and, and what's going to happen and when things are going to happen and how they're going to happen and, and all of that. And I don't think Paul's aim is ever necessarily to solve the mystery uh, of Jesus' second coming as much as it is to bring encouragement and comfort to the church today and how they live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, right? Again, kind of however things happen, wherever things happen, whenever things happen, there's a reality that Christ is going to return, and that ought to affect the way that we live today. And I don't think that Jesus, um, as he's kind of planning all of these things, was saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give these guys a, a mystery that they're just going to spend all of, uh, you know, human history trying to solve, <laughs> I don't think that was necessarily the plan. I think the plan is that, that he's going to come back and that we ought to glory in that and we ought to be thankful uh, for his return, but it ought to spur us on uh, in our mission as Christians and our mission as the church um, to make disciples and, and to draw people, to gather people to Christ as, as much as we can, right? And so if, if our views of eschatology um, are nothing more than a mystery to be solved, we're missing a pretty big piece of it. And, and so let me encourage you with that today. Yes, there is a mystery. And yes, we work at trying to, to know as much of the mystery uh, as is revealed to us. Uh, but, but if it doesn't drive us to worship God, if it doesn't drive us to mission, then we're missing kind of a key piece 
of what God has for us. So keep that in mind as we make our way through uh, this section of the letter and, and really any time that we approach Scripture and talk about uh, the last things. So we're looking at the first five verses uh, today of chapter 2, and it says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And so, evidently, what we can gather from what we read here is that, that people were concerned about the day of the Lord. They were concerned uh, that either they had missed it, they were concerned with, with, with when and how and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and Paul asked them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. He tells them that a couple of things have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. So he gives those who thought that they had missed it some comfort that they didn't miss it. Uh, and what we'll see in our text, hopefully, is that there are two pretty obvious things that have to happen before the coming of the second coming of Christ. Uh, but he asks them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from them. And so what we can gather from that is that, that somebody had either spoken to them or written to them, uh, claiming to be uh, even from maybe Paul and, and his, uh, his buddies, uh, to the church at Thessalonica. We don't have much more record of uh, what may have happened other than what's said here, but it would seem like there was some, some misinformation, right? Today, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about misinformation, right? And, and we hear a lot about uh, cancel culture and how people that put out some perceived misinformation are pretty quickly canceled by society, right? This happened, it was happening a little bit in Paul's day, too, where there was evidently some misinformation that was out there. And the misinformation had to do with the day of the Lord, right? And so Paul is trying to give them some comfort, reminding them that, hey, we talked about these things before, right? And, and again, we don't have record of what that conversation was, but um, based on what we read here, when Paul was with them previously, it sounds like they had face-to-face -face interaction and conversation, and Paul unpacked these things and taught the last things to the church at Thessalonica. And so he's reminding them about what he taught them to counteract whatever misinformation uh, was out there about the day of the Lord. And then Paul gives them these conditions that need to be met before the day of the Lord comes, that first comes a rebellion, and then second comes a man of lawlessness, or the man of lawlessness is revealed, uh, the son of destruction, or the son of perdition, your translation might say. Uh, and so, um, those two things have to happen before Jesus' second coming, and evidenced by Paul's writings, those two things had not happened up to this point. But it leaves us with a couple of kind of big questions. Uh, question number one is, what is the rebellion? And question number two is, who is the man of lawlessness, right? And, and Paul doesn't give us a whole lot to go on, really, with, he doesn't really give us anything to go on for what the rebellion is. He just mentions this rebellion has to happen, doesn't really tell us anything about it. Uh, he mentions that the man of lawlessness has to be revealed, and he tells us a little bit about the man of lawlessness, but um, maybe not a whole lot to, to figure out all of the pieces of the puzzle. John Piper, speaking to this passage, says this. He says that in God's providence in creating and preserving Scripture for His church in all ages, God does not see to it that everything the early church talked about with the apostles 
we get to know. We don't. I take this to be a work of God's wisdom and goodness. It's better for us to know what is preserved in the apostolic writings than that we know about all the detailed conversations Paul had at Thessalonica. We have what we need for salvation and God-pleasing obedience. We don't have enough to answer all of our questions because we're not meant to. And so again, I don't think God was trying to just give us this really tough mystery to solve, you know, over all of human history, uh, according to Piper, and I happen to agree with him that God has given us what we need. He's given us what we need for God-pleasing obedience. He's given us what we need to know. Uh, there will come a day where we know all the things that we don't know now, uh, and that day is coming, but it's not here yet. So for the time being, uh, again, in, in the mystery that we have, it ought to cause us to worship God for who He is and what He's done, even if we can't put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. We can put some of the pieces of the puzzle together, like maybe we can fill out you know, the border of the jigsaw puzzle and kind of see this picture coming together, uh, but there are some missing pieces of the puzzle, and this is quite possibly uh, by God's intentional plan that we can't figure out every single piece of this puzzle. And so the first question that we have to answer here is Paul is trying to give them some comfort, some encouragement to not be alarmed, to not be shaken, trying to encourage them that they haven't missed the thing that they thought they had missed. Uh, he says that this rebellion has to come first. Again, he doesn't really give us really any explanation of what this rebellion is uh, or any details of it. But uh, if we look to Matthew 24, uh, Jesus, I think, gives us maybe uh, some insight into what this rebellion might be. Matthew 24, starting in verse 4, says that Jesus answered them, meaning the disciples, saying that, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." So, so we get the, this kind of glimpse into what's to come. And I think what I take from this is that this is going to be uh, a very distinct event or a distinct period of time where there's kind of no question that we're in the rebellion, right? This, is, this goes beyond just kind of the everyday, um, you know, struggle of Christians, right? We, we all know people who uh, maybe seem to have wandered from the faith. We know people that come and go. Um, you know, we see people come and go from the church. Uh, we see people in their struggles. We see people uh, who wander for periods of time, maybe before, you know, coming back to the Lord. I don't think Paul's talking about that kind of thing. I think he's talking about a distinct time where um, this is going to happen in a way that, like, we know something's up, right? We know, um, you know, this is the beginning, he says, of birth pains, right? When, when labor happens, right? Think about, you know, when, when a woman has a baby, when labor happens, like, you know, you know that it's labor, right? You might have those kind of you know, trips to the hospital where they tell you, no, not, not quite yet, it wasn't it. But like when the water breaks and it's go time, like you know, you know that it's time and you know that, that what's about to happen is an, an inevitability. That's the kind of thing that, that Jesus is talking about here. Nation will rise against nation. We see that happening in our world today. 
we see, you know, wars happening in our world today, and, and Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed, because these things have to happen. In other words, Jesus is saying this is part of the plan. These things aren't happening by accident. It's not happenstance. These things are part of God's intentional plan unfolding, all things culminating in the second coming of Christ. And God is in control of every part of it. Jesus tells his followers that, that they, meaning worldly authorities, will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. He said, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Right? This, this, is, this is nothing new either, at least on a small scale. Right? We, we look throughout church history and the church has been persecuted. The church has suffered. Even today we see Christians in other parts of the world who are very legitimately persecuted and suffering for the cause of Christ. We, we don't really know that here in America. Right? Our, our suffering in America, our persecution is that maybe people think that we're weird. That, that's, that's about the worst thing that we suffer in America, and we don't like that. Right? But you can go online and watch you know, grotesque videos of things happening to people because of their allegiance to Christ. Right? That, that's nothing new. And Jesus is telling us that like, this is going to happen. He said, you'll be put to death. You'll be hated because you're a follower of Christ. Because of your allegiance to Christ, people will come against you. So we see these, all these things happening kind of outside of the church, kind of you know, persecution from without. And then in verse 10, he says that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. We see kind of this apostasy within the church. Right? So you see persecution and suffering coming from outside of the church, happening in the world. And then you see inside of the church, many falling away and betraying one another and hating one another. And so inside the church, people at odds with one another. Many false prophets, Jesus says, will arise and lead many astray. So again, within the church, like misinformation flowing from inside the church by false prophets and false teachers. And then we're told because of all of this, because of all the lawlessness, that the love of many will grow cold. This is, this is kind of the end result of this. So Jesus, I think, gives us a glimpse into what this rebellion might look like. It would seem that this is large scale. It would seem that this is identifiable in nature with attacks both from outside the church and, and inside the church. This will be a major ordeal and I think a pretty distinct time in world history. And oftentimes it's in hindsight that we see 2020, right? We might not in the middle of something realize, oh, this, this is what's happening, right? But it's always afterwards you look back and see, okay, we, we see clearly what happened. Now it's worth mentioning in all of this and this, this apostasy within the church and, and uh, people falling away and love growing cold. We, we know and we believe and we have strong convictions of a doctrine called the preservation of the saints, that, that all who belong to Christ will make it through this. All who belong to Christ will not fall away, right? Jesus tells us that, that He will keep all that the Father has given Him. He won't lose any of all that the Father has given Him, right? And, and so we have to, we can't divorce our belief and our conviction in that doctrine with what's being said here. So, so we don't know what exactly this is going to look like and how people are going to fall away and, and all of these things, but we know that those who belong to Christ will be preserved. All those who belong to Christ will persevere. At the same time, this is a difficult time for the church, and weird things are happening uh, in the church during this period of time. 
but, but we trust and we believe in God's promises that, that all who belong to Christ will not be lost, right? And so we can sleep at night because we believe that to be true. Right? If you're here today and, and you're, you're a follower of Christ, and if you have to go through this, know that, that Christ will, will hold you fast. Christ will keep you. Right? If you're here today and, and you're, you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and maybe haven't become a follower of Christ yet, know that, that you can have some security in Christ's grip on you, that, that He doesn't let go of those whom He has a hold of. So this rebellion, again, a distinct period of time, an identifiable period of time that, that's different than just kind of the everyday run-of-the-mill thing. And that's the first thing that has to happen before Christ comes back. The second thing that has to happen is that the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. And so we have to ask this question, who is this man of lawlessness, right? And I don't know that we're going to completely crack this nut today. Based on what's in the text, we know a little bit, but, but, but I don't know that we're going to be able to put our finger on this is exactly who the man of lawlessness is. But one thing that we know and I'm, I'm spoiling David's text a little bit for next week, but verse 9 tells us that his activity will be brought about by Satan. And so from that, we can infer that this man of lawlessness is not Satan himself, right? We can infer that, seeming to indicate that this is a distinct person from the enemy. Most theologians would agree that, that this is probably a reference to the Antichrist. The identity of the Antichrist is, is a bit debated, and we're not going to go there today because that's not in our text. So that's a, a conversation probably for another day. But for our purposes today, we can look at what we can clearly know from what's in the text. And so he's referred to as the man of lawlessness, and so we can infer from that that this is probably a human being. Right? There, there's some debate among some theologians that, that maybe this is talking about a demon or some sort of a spirit uh, or a power. Uh, there's some debate that maybe this is talking about like, like a nation or an authority uh, of some sort. Um, but we're told he's the man of lawlessness. And so the, just the plain reading of Scripture would seem to indicate that like this is a person, right? And there's a stark contrast to the man of lawlessness when we look at, look at who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the man of righteousness. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is god in the flesh, right? God's stepping into human flesh and human blood, human bones uh, to dwell among us, the Bible tells us. And so there's a distinction between the man of lawlessness and the man of righteousness. So not only is he a man, but he's a man of lawlessness. So in other words, he's opposed to order, opposed to justice, opposed to truth, opposed to righteousness, right? Do, do we see any of that in our society at all? Yeah, we do. We see a lot of that right? And really, by our, our nature as human beings, we, we kind of naturally are opposed to these things. So some of us more than others, but all of us have this disposition where we are, we are opposed to God from the outset of our life, right? From the moment that we draw our first breath. But this man of lawlessness is opposed to order and justice and truth and righteousness in a way that, that people pay attention and, and people will follow this man of lawlessness. And again, just an interesting contrast with, with who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come to oppose the law, right? Jesus came to fulfill the law, right? Jesus came to do what you and I could not do on our best day. Jesus came not to oppose justice, but Jesus came 
to bring justice, right? To justify those who, who are sinners before God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the truth, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's, he's not opposed to truth, but He is truth. He is the truth, and He is our righteousness. So we're seeing kind of this pattern develop in who this man of lawlessness is, really in, in every way is the exact opposite of who Christ is. The man of lawlessness, also referred to as the son of destruction. So in other words, he, he comes with a mission, this man of lawlessness, and his mission is to bring destruction. His mission is to destroy. And, and we're told in the Bible that, that our enemy, the devil, like he, he roams around like a lion seeking who he might kill and devour and destroy, right? And so it would make sense that this agent of Satan would be someone of destruction. But not only is he destined to destroy, he's destined to be destroyed. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But again, exact opposite of who Jesus is, Jesus is the creator. Jesus didn't come to destroy anything. Jesus created, we're told in the beginning, was God. Right In the beginning, that, that Jesus was there for creation and, and he was... God had spoken to existence out of nothing, everything that exists. So, so Jesus is not a destroyer, he's a creator. We're told that this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, opposes and exalts himself. That he's self-centered, he's all about himself, he's all about bringing glory to himself. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus, he's the exact imprint of the Father. Right? And, and He brings glory to the Father. We're told that, that if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. Right? We see Jesus in the garden before He was arrested and taken to the cross, submitting to the will of the Father, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Jesus not trying to bring glory to Himself, but, but to submit and fulfill the will of the Father. And so this man of lawlessness is distinct from Jesus in that He exalts himself. He opposes and is against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, this man of lawlessness has a pretty high view of himself. Right? How high of a view of yourself do you have to have that you would oppose every so-called God and every object of worship to say that, that I'm the ultimate, everybody worship me, everybody look at me? What, what kind of arrogance and pride has to exist in this man of lawlessness in order to shine the light on himself in this way. And at the end of the day, this man of lawlessness, he's not God. This man of lawlessness is nothing. We're told that he takes his seat in the temple of God, and there's some debate as to what that statement means. Right? If, if it's the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, if it's more of a metaphorical, you know, kind of a thing where he's just a person in power. But whatever it means, whatever it looks like, this man takes a position that's not his to take, this man of lawlessness. We're told in Matthew 28 that Jesus has been given some authority, most authority. No, he's been given all authority. All authority and all creation and all of the universe has been given to Christ. And this man of lawlessness, by taking a seat in the temple of God, is trying to usurp that authority that rightfully belongs to Christ. And in all of this, he proclaims himself to be God. Of all of the audacious claims that anybody could make, 
probably the most audacious claim is that I'm God. Right? There's no more audacious claim that anybody could make and no more of an untrue claim that anybody could make besides that one. And this man proclaims of himself that he's God. We know because the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that there's going to come a day, or Philippians chapter 2, that there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, right, that everyone will confess, whether as a follower of Christ submitting to His will and His authority, or an unwilling vessel, there's going to come a day when everybody knows and there's going to be no question that Jesus is Lord. And everyone in all of creation will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so again, a stark contrast to this man of lawlessness. That, that It doesn't say that other people will confess that he's God, but it says that he will proclaim himself to be God, right? Self-appointed authority. We know and we believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the one who holds everything together, the entirety of the cosmos. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there, there are no rogue particles. I think I'm paraphrasing, but essentially there are no rogue particles in the universe that Jesus controls all of it, everything. Nothing happens by randomness. Nothing is, is by happenstance. Everything is by the intentional design and in fulfillment of the intentional, purposeful plan of Jesus. And so this man of lawlessness, whoever he is, He's the exact opposite of Jesus in every way. And again, to, to spoil just a little bit of next week's service, sorry, I'm doing this to you twice, David, but we're told that in the coming verses that Jesus will destroy this son of destruction with the breath of his mouth. There's going to come a day Jesus is going to show up and just, and the guy's gone. Right? This guy that has worked so hard to proclaim himself to be God, to take his seat in the temple, to gain a following, this guy who works so hard to exalt himself, Jesus is going to show up and, and that's it. Right? So this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, whoever he is, what kind of power he might seem to yield, what kind of authority he might seem to have, will be gone in an instant when Jesus decides it's time for it to be gone. Right? So, so we can get caught up in, in you know, again, trying to figure out this mystery and, and who exactly this guy is and where he fits in the timeline of human history, but, but we know that he's nothing. We know that he's nothing and that Jesus is going to take care of him. In verse 5, Paul asks the question, he says, do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And so we know, again, what we infer from this is that Paul has already been over this with the church at Thessalonica. Whatever that conversation was, whatever classes he taught, however it went down, that, that he has already been over it with them, and he's reminding them, don't, don't buy in to the misinformation. Don't buy in to the false teachings that seem to be circulating. Remember what I proclaim to you as the truth of the Word of God. And I think that would be an encouragement for me to you today as well. Let's look at what we can know about the Word of God, what the Bible reveals to us, what the Bible tells us, and let's put our confidence there when it comes especially to our eschatology, 
right? We, we tend to do a lot of kind of gymnastics to try to figure out things, and well, this means this, and that means that, and, you know, we, we get into the weeds sometimes a little bit too far, I think. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work at it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't study and try to know what we can know. I'm not saying that at all. But, but what can we clearly and plainly know from the Word of God? And let's, let's put our hope there. Let's put our trust there. And let's be confident and not shaken in what we can know rather than getting so twisted up about what we don't know or what we maybe are not even meant to know. Paul, it would seem, spoke to them in detail about these last things when he was face-to-face with them. And even though we don't have a record of what was taught, we know that this was important enough of a topic that Paul took the time to make sure of the church at Thessalonica understood some things about eschatology. More than that, however, our understanding of eschatology isn't merely an intellectual endeavor. There, there is an intellectual endeavor to it, but, but it's not merely an intellectual endeavor. It's not merely, as I've already said, a mystery to be solved, but rather our eschatology is a topic that I think when we approach it properly, it gives us a reason to worship God. What, what kind of God do we have that He can just show up and, and the bad guy's gone? <laughs> That's a God that seems to be worthy of our worship and our allegiance, right? Our eschatology, when understood properly, is a basis for the hope that we have in Christ. If I'm going to put my hope somewhere, I'm going to put my hope in the guy that can obliterate the man of destruction just with the breath out of his mouth. I'm going to put my hope there. I'm going to put my hope, no matter how bad this world gets, in the fact that Christ is going to return. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime or not. Right? There are some days where, especially as I get older, and maybe you experience this too, um, I just think to myself, like, how much longer is it going to be? There's a lot of gnarly things that happen in the world. There's a lot of hard things that happen in the world, tragic things that happen in the world. And there are days where I just ask, how long? Right? There are other days when, you know, maybe I don't have my head buried in the headlines, and I think, you know what, like this life here is pretty good. I wouldn't mind if it went on a little bit longer. Right? Maybe you're like that too. But my hope ultimately, and our hope as Christians ultimately is not in how good the life here can be. When we think about things in the scope of eternity, right? we can't even fathom eternity because we're finite beings and we can't fathom even what's in, uh, uh, infinite. But eternity, or our life here is just, just a little bit, just a blip on the radar of eternity. We, we can't even wrap our minds around that. And so the years that we have here in this world are 50 years, 60 years, 70, 80, 90, 100 if you're lucky. Whatever we get, it's not much compared to eternity. And our eschatology, our view of the last things ought to cause us to think towards eternity as much as we're able to and to put our hope as much as we're able to in what's to come more so than the here and the now. Our eschatology, when understood properly, also becomes a motivation for the mission with which we've been entrusted. Right? Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given to Him? on heaven and on earth, like all authority everywhere, all the authority that exists has been given to him. Do you remember what he said next? He said, go therefore into all of the world and make disciples and teach people to follow Christ. So when, so when someone starts out 
their statement by saying, all authority belongs to me, like what they say next bears some weight, right? And, and so Jesus, as a precursor to this command to go out into the world and to teach people who He is and how to follow Him, the precursor to that is all authority belongs to me, which means that statement bears some weight. Right? And so, so however we view eschatology, wherever you land on when things are going to happen or how they're going to happen or who this man of lawlessness is or what the rebellion looks like, whatever it is, there are people in this world that need to know Christ. And we've been entrusted as the church with the mission to make sure, as far as it's up to us, that people come to know Christ. And if we're missing that piece as we think about eschatology, we're missing a pretty big piece. Going back to Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14, we're told that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Paul doesn't give us this tidbit in 2 Thessalonians, but Jesus tells us there's another thing that has to happen before the end will come. And it's that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations of who Christ is. Right? That the, we, we can't disconnect the mission from our views on eschatology. So whether you're pre this or post that or ah that, whatever, like we can't disconnect it from the mission that we've been given because there is a, a, a finiteness to the mission. Like the mission's going to come to an end. There's going to be a day that the mission to go is over. Right? When we're face to face with Christ, that day that every tongue confesses and every knee bows that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's no mission at that point because everybody knows. But between now and then, there's the mission to proclaim throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations of who Christ is that we ought to engage in. So, so I know I'm kind of banging a drum here, but, but whatever our eschatology is, we can't disconnect it from the call to go into the world and to proclaim who Christ is and to teach people to obey all that He's commanded. And so as we consider the last things, as we consider and study and work to figure out what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and, and the timeline and all of these things, consider the mission as well. And consider the mission as a primary component of whatever your eschatological view would be. And know that, that whatever happens, however bad things get, right? We've had three kids and, you know, been in the room with labor for all three kids and some labors were harder than others, Right? No matter how bad the birth pains are, no matter how bad the labor gets, what happens in the world, Jesus is coming. He's going to show up and whoo, and we're done, right? We're done. And so worship the God who is that. Worship Jesus. Engage in the mission that Jesus has commanded us to engage in. And let's play our part in this gospel being proclaimed throughout the whole of the world. Father, we're thankful for this morning, thankful that we can put our hope in you, and not just that we can put our hope in you, but you are infinitely worthy of all of the hope that we have. We're thankful that we not only can put our trust in you, but you're infinitely worthy of all of the trust that we have. We're thankful, God, that not only can we worship you, but you're worthy of all of the worship that we have to give, even though it's not enough. And so I would pray for us today that you would help us 
um, as we consider the last things, that we would consider the impact of the last things on the here and the now and how we live today, the activities in which we engage today. Pray that you would help us to be uh, a people that are passionate about seeing others come to know Christ because there will come a day where every knee bows and every tongue confesses willingly or unwillingly that you are Lord. And so God, help us to do our part uh, as we engage in the mission and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.